Hello, and welcome back to the final lesson in Genesis and the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. If you are a Latter-day Saint, welcome. Glad to have you. I hope you can listen to all the episodes in this. I'm trying to keep them shorter and shorter. This one will be shorter because we're just going to look at one verse. <laughs> yeah, this lesson covers Genesis 42 through 50, but not really from my perspective. Uh, we're only going to look at one verse today um, to wrap up the book of Genesis. But uh, thanks for joining me. And yeah, we do have these episodes all in a playlist on Facebook, a playlist on YouTube, a playlist on our SoundCloud page, the Orchard Hills Bible Church SoundCloud page, and YouTube page and Facebook page. Uh, so yeah, find us on there and watch these episodes to catch up on the book of Genesis. And hopefully I can provide some interesting insights, some interesting perspective as a Bible church pastor that you might not get otherwise. Well, as we consider what has happened in the book of Genesis, we have to say, what a marvelous work of God this is, huh? God who creates all things out of nothing. God who creates man in his own image, breathes life into him, sees man fall, and yet gives man a promise of redemption through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. This God is now building a nation. He has called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's given them unconditional promises. There's nothing they need to do to uphold their end of the deal. God has said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's all good stuff that he's going to do to them. Now, they're going to go through, of course, some really painful experiences. But God's blessing is never going to leave them. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through this people that God has been building. How amazing. And God is working through the life of Joseph in an amazing way, a very unique way. If you start at the end of the 30s of Genesis, maybe chapter 39, and read through the end, you're going to see so many things about the life of Joseph that are just dramatic and, and magnificent. The way that God leads him through various places to bring about his purposes is just astounding. And it's, uh, again, dramatic. I just used the word dramatic. It's an amazing drama. Uh, Joseph has some interactions with his brother, uh, not singular brother, brothers. He has 11 brothers. And um, there are 10 of them in particular that he has some interesting interaction with. As you start reading through the narrative of his life in Egypt, Joseph has ended up in Egypt as a, a governor or a ruler there with some prominence. And He's interacting with his brothers in a way that's kind of disguising his true identity. I should, shouldn't say kind of. He's, he's truly veiling his, his true identity. And he is bringing the family to Egypt. He's bringing uh, all his brothers and his father to Egypt. And when I say he's doing that, it's really God doing that. He's taking Israel to Egypt. And he has a very specific purpose for that. And, and God is just showing so much of his grace through this. When you read through the final chapters, uh, 48, 49, and 50 of Genesis, Genesis is 50 chapters, you see God's grace being poured out on this totally undeserving people. These things that Jacob has done in his life, if you go back a few episodes, the way Jacob lied to his father and the way Jacob uh, haggled with his brother to obtain his birthright for a bowl of stew, um, man, J Jacob doesn't deserve to be in a position of receiving blessing from God. And yet God spoke to him through a dream with a ladder or a staircase. God 
sent his angel or perhaps God himself wrestled with Jacob. We talked through that a couple episodes ago. I keep saying we, I, I talked to that a couple episodes ago. Uh, God is, is just pouring out rich blessings on Jacob by grace. And now Jacob is enabled to bless his sons. And that grace extends to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, just, just really remarkable that God is choosing to do this to people who don't deserve it. And there are other people who don't deserve it and they get what they deserve. How is that fair? Well, this is this is just God's choice. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Um, let me switch to this view, and let's look at the one verse we're going to look at today. Genesis 50, 20. Joseph, talking to his brothers, who threw him in a pit, who, who tried to just get rid of him because they didn't like him. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You have two subjects, one being the group of brothers and the other being God, and they both have intentions. You see that the they both are said to have meant something. You meant evil and God meant good. And they are meaning the same thing. Uh, it, it's very interesting. Uh, it says in our translation, kind of, we have to use English words to, to fill in um, sometimes, and this is one of those cases, where Joseph is saying, you meant this evil thing against me. And it could be said, God meant that same thing for good in order to bring about the result that we have today, namely to preserve many people alive. So you have the brothers and God meaning, intending, accounting for, thinking toward the same thing, but one side having evil intentions, the other side having only good intentions. How does this work? I mean, isn't that just, isn't that just fascinating? You've got these brothers wanting to kill Joseph, and so they meant for Joseph to go down into that pit and whatever happens to him happens to him. Well, God also meant for Joseph to go into that pit. That Joseph did not go into the pit apart from God's desire. God or, God sent Joseph to the pit. Joseph didn't end up in the pit apart from God's intention and God's will. The reason you could say Joseph ended up in the pit was because God willed for Joseph to be in the pit. But as you read through the narrative, and certainly as we experience things like this in our lives, we say, well, the reason why Joseph was in the pit, or the reason I ended up in my own metaphorical pit, was because of these people doing this thing to me, or because of my own bad decisions, or whatever. Well, here we're learning, through Joseph's mouth, the one who experienced this, the reason these things happen in life is because God is intending it. Because God intends it. Not because man intends it, and then God scrambles to try to, to try to change it or morph it into something good. That's not the way this is presented. It, it, Joseph doesn't say, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God spun it to make it turn out good. I think it would actually be well in this case. But that's not how he presents it. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's... Uh, that's an amazing theological statement. And I have here Romans 
where it says that God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This is God's activity among human beings. Um, there is no injustice with God, Paul says in Romans 9.14. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, verse 15. Compassion on whom he has compassion. And it does not depend on man who wills. It does not depend on man's running. But it depends on God who has mercy. And this is in the context of salvation. The Scripture says to Pharaoh... Now, we're going to learn about Pharaoh here pretty soon, but I'm assuming you know Pharaoh's a bad guy. Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you. This is God speaking. That my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. How did Pharaoh get into his position? Not just his position of authority, but how did he get into his position of being against Israel? Well, it was God's purpose. God raised him up, put him in that position, and brought about those specific events according to his specific purpose, his good purpose. So then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God is so at work in the world and all things that are going on in the world that each thing that happens is the result of God's intentions. Nothing happens apart from that. Even evil acts. Even evil acts. Joseph's brothers, who meant evil and carried out an evil deed, and we all sit back and say, objectively, what they did to Joseph was wrong, right? But that happened because God intended it. There's a very clear example of this in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, it is affirmed that even the crucifixion of Christ, the very specific people who were involved in the trial, the people who were involved in the execution, that they were all carrying out God's will. Now you tell me, is there a more evil act that could ever be committed than crucifying the Son of God? The answer is no. No, no, no. Yet, it is God's will that it happened just the way it did. See, we can't escape this. And I hope you've seen this in, in the book of Genesis. We can't escape that God is weaving all things together. If we go all the way back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. This is his world. There's a hymn that we sing. This is my father's world. This, this world belongs to God, and He is able, because He's God, He is able to do what He wants in this earth and bring about His purposes through His creatures. And uh, not only is He able to do it, that's what He does. <laughs> in the book of Job, it says that no plan of God's can be thwarted. You can't throw God's plans off track. But it's exactly what God intended would happen. No plan of his can be thwarted. Marinate on that for a while. It's pretty fascinating. So God's God is active in hum, humanity. God is active in the world that he created to bring about his predetermined plan. And this is God's story, isn't it? 
what's going on in the world is God's story. He's actually already at the end. He's in the future. What's future to us? He's already there. Uh, there is no future to him. There is no tomorrow to him. He knows exactly how it's all going to end, and he's revealed quite a bit of that to us. And that's because no plan of his can be thwarted in any way whatsoever. And I would encourage you, especially if you, you are LDS, I would encourage you that as you read the Bible, that you read it looking at God's story, that you're looking at it from the perspective of the sovereign God weaving all things together to bring glory to his name as is right and as is good. If you get so caught up in the details of the Bible that are human-based and heaven forbid, you try to put yourself into the narrative or take the narrative and say, how do I make my life that way? You're missing the point. Because the point of the Bible is to magnify the name of God, to bring glory to God, to make us think more highly of God. The point of the Bible is not this human-centered approach to life that is about us. Life is not about us. And I think Joseph had probably the most profound realization of that as God is leading him and speaking these words, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's saying, this isn't about us. He's saying, God is doing something in the world to bring glory to his name. And you need to get yourself out of the way. (laughs) So uh, if you had that type of approach to the Bible, I think that would really help you as you study it. Um, Because so many things happen in the word of God that can distract us if we have the wrong approach. If we have the right approach, then every detail of Scripture serves to lift up and exalt, to honor the name of God. But if we have an approach that's me-centered, if you if you approach the Bible like, how can I make this about me? Then you're going to get caught up in all sorts of things you shouldn't get caught up in. So take advice from Joseph and, and look for God in it. Look for what God is doing in the world. And I hope the, the study of Genesis has been helpful to you. I hope it's been a blessing. I look forward to walking through Exodus with you. Let's see, um, let's see what the schedule looks like. How many lessons in Exodus? One, two, three, four, oh, several, five, six, six lessons in Exodus. Though the last one is uh, also uh, tied together with Leviticus. So we'll, we'll have to see how that works. But... Um, Yeah, six lessons in Exodus, so I I look forward to that. I think there were 10 in Genesis, and uh, thank you for joining me. As always, feel free to reach out and discuss these things, comment if you're on social media or on YouTube, and let me know how this can be more helpful. Thank you, and God bless.